I'm not the king of, well, any media or someone who's even really old enough to appreciate the true 50th anniversary of anything. I'm just a schnook. Everybody, this is what is it? Chapter fifteen, episode fifteen. Yeah, of autobiography of a schnook, and I am your host, Sean. And as usual, I thank you for listening. And I realize I have a lot of material that I'm talking about today, so I'm not going to preamble too long. As I record this, it is just days away from Thanksgiving 2019. As you hear this, it may have already passed. And every Thanksgiving here in the state of Illinois, even though, well, then again, I don't know if Chicago counts as Illinois. My wife often says that Chicago is its own state, and I tend to agree with her. But anyway, right around now, we have the state championship football playoffs. It always happens Thanksgiving weekend. And unfortunately, my alma mater, Juliet Catholic, didn't make it this year. They got knocked out in the quarterfinals from a school outside of St. Louis. Uh, It's called Mascuda High School. I think that's how it's pronounced. I never heard of them until this year. The thing is, it's so common for me to see Joliet Catholic in the state finals. I'm always excited for Thanksgiving weekend because of that. But this year, unfortunately, it didn't happen. There's a Joliet Catholic football Facebook page. And I want to read you a message that was posted from a Mascuda student. And her name is Ashton. And I, I just need to share this. This is so, this is so awesome. She says... Hey, Joliet, I'm a varsity football manager from Ascuda, and I would like to thank your boys, coaches, and program for the way you treated us. From the moment we pulled up to the second we pulled away, you guys were nothing but amazing. Your boys were respectful, kind, and showed that we are all on the same team. It was a fantastic game with two amazing teams, and that showed through the scoreboard. One specific player really left an impact on everyone. That was number 23. I believe your name is Jordan, and you are a wonderful person and could have handled the situation so much differently. You came to our senior boys and gave us tips and pointers for our games to come. You even came onto our bus before we left us for final words. Thank you. You truly changed us. Not only were the players amazing, but so was the program overall. Before we left, we had an authority figure, maybe head coach or athletic director, come onto our bus two different times. The first time he brought us catered food for our long ride home. We have never been treated like this. He then came back and shared some words with us explaining that we are on the same team. This program is full of respect and class. Thank you for being great hosts. I wish you all the best of luck for your seasons to come. And yeah, number 23 was Jordan Anderson. He plays right back, left back, and tight end. And good lord, that that was just a wonderful message to see. Uh, Not just because it shows what good sports my alma mater consists of, but also that there was good sportsmanship on both sides of the field. And that that's just amazing. We especially need that these days with all that crap that's going on in the NFL. What with one player ripping a quarterback's helmet off and using it to beat his head with, come on, come on, what's going on there? This is what we should all learn from. This is awesome. When I read that, I was thrilled. I seriously was Almost as happy reading that as I would have been watching my Hilltoppers take the state championship again. But hey, the way I see it is that really, if if you think about it, given Joliet Catholic's record 
Since Gordy Gillespie was head coach in the 70s, there have been very few Joliet Catholic students who went through four years of high school without knowing what it's like to win the state championship, or at least come very close to it. Being part of something that had a reputation for winning led me to culture shock in college. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know why. But speaking of college, I want to talk about an interest that I had for a long time that I had a chance in college to take advantage of. And this kind of spawned from an idea that a listener to my other podcast, Pie Factory Podcast, had a few years ago, because both my co-host Jim and I had experience in radio. The listener said, hey, why don't you guys do an off-topic episode about your experiences with radio? That sounds fascinating. So what I did for this edition of Autobiography of a Schnook, I kind of sat down and thought about my interest in radio, my origins, and my experience in college, and just kind of organized that into something somewhat coherent, into a flow that I think might be talkable. So, well, let's just listen to the story, shan't we? I guess to talk about my radio career, I need to start way back with my second semester, senior year of high school, winter of 1992. Thanks to my ACT score, I was offered a trustee scholarship to the college, now university, of St. Francis, just a mile up the road from where I lived in Joliet. As long as I maintained a 3.25 GPA, uh, later lowered to 3.0, I would get $3,000 a year. These days, that's a drop in the bucket for college tuition, but it was a huge help back then, especially because I was going to be a commuter student and ergo didn't have to worry about room and board. My friend Andy was also going to attend St. Francis. Uh, His mother worked there as an education professor, and I think he got a significant tuition break for that. Thanks to his mom, we found out that there was going to be a special preview weekend for future students. You'd get to pick class workshops to attend, go on a campus tour. Uh, It's like three or four buildings within a city block, so the campus tour would take maybe 10 minutes. Uh, See a home basketball game, you know, stuff like that. So Andy and I both signed up for things that we thought, you know, here's what you have to sign up for because this is college after all. So it was academic stuff. Uh, I think like newspaper journalism or something I think I signed up for. I don't remember exactly what we both signed up for, but when we took another look at the list, we both wondered aloud, what the hell are we doing? Let's have some fun. We both canceled the workshops we signed up for and switched to explosive chemistry and radio broadcasting. Unfortunately, the explosive chemistry workshop had uh, no explosions at all, so I don't know what that was all about. I was left disappointed. Andy liked the instructor. Uh, The instructor was Bill Wildey, and uh, he would later be my freshman core one and astronomy instructor. But uh, Andy liked the guy because he thought he looked like Timothy Leary, but I disagree. Eh, what are you going to do? But I was really looking forward to the radio workshop because I was really into radio at the time. I listened to the comedic talk shows on WLUPAM as much as I could. And as you know, if you listen to Chapter 14, I was and still am a big Dr. Demento fan. The radio workshop was simple, really. It basically included visiting the college's radio station, WCSF 88.7 on the FM dial. Alternative music exploding out of 50 watts of broadcast power. (laughs) 
Scott Delaney, who's still involved in Joliet Radio to this day, if I'm not mistaken. He was a junior, I believe, and he was on the air at the time, so he showed us around the station and how things worked. He emphasized several times that working the radio board is incredibly easy. Scott said, look, two weeks max and you'll be able to operate this stuff in your sleep. He showed us how the CD players, cart machines, and microphones were wired into the console, how to adjust the volume on each device, or pot up and pot down the volume, and more importantly, make sure the needles on the VU meters didn't go into the red zone. To give us a feel of how a radio station works, Scott dished out little tasks for everybody in the group. My task was to read the news. I don't remember what everybody else's tasks were, but uh, hey, for me, no problem. I always had a reputation for projection and non-monotonous reading. Even though I've never had a fear of public speaking, I was actually a little bit nervous when Scott started the newsroom sound effects off the cart machine and he turned my mic on. But why was I nervous? Well... Because he said that even though the station was only 50 watts, that's still enough power to reach well over 100,000 to possibly a quarter of a million people. So here I was, about to address a potential six-digit population. Thankfully, I was wise enough to read the copy ahead of time. I got into that habit uh, when I was in liturgy committee in high school, and uh, during a meeting once, Father Jim told us lectors to make sure that we look at our readings well ahead of time. He told us a story of how when he was a kid and had to read something at Mass, and he hadn't prepared ahead of time, he happened to cross the phrase, gird your loins, and basically he could not help but just break down in laughter, giggling like a little 10-year-old. Uh, anyway, I found a new word that I wasn't sure how to pronounce, Azerbaijani. Nobody in the room knew how to pronounce it exactly, so I just guessed at the pronunciation, kind of uh, using what I learned in my Latin class to conclude how things should be pronounced. Uh, turns out I was right, thank God. Uh, the word Azerbaijani must have been in that story about eight times. But Andy and I, we really enjoyed the workshop, so much that when the Saturday night festivities were over that week and we got bored, we went back up to the fourth floor of Tower Hall where the journalism department was, and ergo so was the radio station. We just wanted to hang out in the station and watch whoever was on the air in action, but I think the station actually signed off for the night at the time because nobody answered the doorbell. Ah, well. That experience and my existing fascination with radio made me sign up for Radio 1, the second semester of my freshman year. The instructor, Bob Zack, who'd been on the air at various small and middle market radio stations pretty much since he got out of high school. In fact, I think he still is involved in radio. You didn't have to have Bob speak for more than, say, one syllable, and you knew immediately that he was a radio guy. His natural speaking voice was built with radio in mind. 95.9 The River, this is Bob Zack. Welcome to Friday night. It's a great night of music ahead of us. We'll check the forecast. I remember the first day of class when he introduced himself. He said, I'm Bob. I hate being called Mr. Zack, so don't call me Mr. Zack. I don't want to be called Professor Zack because, well, I'm not. Let's just keep it simple. I'm Bob. And uh, Bob gave us a very short sales pitch about why the radio program at St. Francis was a lot better than what you'd get at most broadcast schools. For one thing, at most broadcast schools, the instructors there had never been on the air, and they usually don't have radio stations. And from what I'm told by people who did go to, say, the Illinois Center for Broadcasting, that was indeed true. But Bob, who was the only radio instructor at St. Francis, at least at the time, he had years of experience, and as part of the radio program, you would be on the air if you wanted to be, provided you were approved. 
which I initially wasn't. Our first assignment in Radio 1 was to record half an hour of a mock air check using a playlist generated from a piece of software called Selector, complete with breaks, complete with promos, PSAs, weather reports. Well, uh, by the way, because the radio station is run by an educational institution, FCC law forbids paid advertising on WCSF, so no commercials. The station itself was off the air. It would usually go off the air before Christmas and come back two or three weeks into the winter semester. So we just had the console set up to direct the output to a cassette deck rather than the antenna. Just a simple flip of the switch. I thought my initial attempt was pretty weak and boring, so I booked another half hour in the station to record my demo for the assignment. But before I did the demo, I guzzled three or four cans of Mountain Dew in the morning to perk myself up, and it turned out not to be a good idea. The thing is, before college, I seldom had much caffeine, and my body didn't quite know what to do with all this stimulant, not to mention the high fructose corn syrup, of course. I ended up literally yelling between songs and going into the red, and probably about 20 minutes in, I calmed down a bit, but I just couldn't say anything relevant, really. I had no creativity, nothing good to say. Bob gave us all written critiques and a grade, and those who were okay to go on the air would have okay written at the top. Uh, my critique came back, the grade C, maybe C+, and no okay written on top. Comments included, avoid screaming, those days are over, and think before you talk and you'll sound better. Bob did say that anybody who did not get the okay to be on the air, you could try again as often as you want, so I kept that in mind. But I gotta admit, I was jealous of those who were filling out their FCC broadcast license applications while I just uh, sat and waited. But as for the rest of Radio 1 class, it was a lot of fun, and thankfully very easy. There wasn't even a final exam. Bob's philosophy was, I already tested you on this stuff, why should I test you again? The regular tests were pretty easy, and all the homework was just audio projects, like commercials and things like that. Yeah, even though the college station didn't air commercials, we still had to learn what they were, how they were used, all that good stuff. Our commercial assignments were to come up with advertisements for any product or service that exists, and we had to show proof that the product exists just so Bob knew we weren't making something up. One assignment was to do a 30-second ad, the other was for a 60-second ad. If the recording went under or over the prescribed time at all, we'd get dinged on the grade because, as Bob told us, advertisers pay for 30-second time slots. They pay for 60-second time slots. If they paid for that 30-second slot but the ad only gets 28 seconds of airtime, they'll be rightfully pissed. And what if an advertiser hears someone else's 60-second slot but the ad actually runs 63 seconds? Of course, they're going to go straight to the station and demand to know why somebody else got three extra seconds on the air for free. Speaking of commercials, I guess I should explain the stuff you hear during a station break. Usually the order goes promos, then commercials, then PSAs, and then uh, weather between song chatter, all, that kind of thing. A promo is basically a self-advertisement for the station. Because a station wants you to pay attention to their own advertisements, promos tend to be the most exciting recorded bits during the break. The promos might advertise other programming on the station or perhaps an upcoming contest. And coming up next, wait a minute, oh, I gotta play this. To Did you play my promo? What, this one? Yep, Lorna, here you go. Hi, this is Lorna Whitfield, host of The Ballad and the Beat of Love. 
And some people have been asking me, Lorna, what exactly is the ballad in the beat of love? Well, it's the only show in Joliet where you will hear all of your favorite slow songs as well as love dedications and foreplay, which features four songs back to back with no interruptions. Same thing goes for TV. You'll see promos during breaks when you watch TV. So with this bit of knowledge I just gave you, you can do what I like to do. If you hear someone say, I saw a commercial for the new episode of Family Guy or place any other TV show here. Say to that person, no, you didn't. You saw a promo. Really, try it. People love being corrected. But yeah, a promo is not a commercial. The root of the word commercial is commerce. So commercial indicates that commerce is happening. Money is changing hands. That's the point of a commercial. You might hear a PSA, a public service announcement, during a break. You won't necessarily always hear one during a break, but radio stations are required to broadcast at least one a day, if I recall correctly. The thing about PSAs is that stations don't make any money from PSAs. And because they don't make money off of them and the PSAs don't actually promote the stations, many stations only broadcast PSAs during weird hours when most people are, say, asleep. The PSAs quite frequently are read live on the air, usually off a 3x5 card, and frequently it's for a local nonprofit or maybe a county drug rehab program or something like that. And WCSF would like you to know that Easter Seals helps people from all over the area with their needs. You can be a volunteer or make a, t- a contribution today. Give Easter Seals a call, 722-6814. Keeping in touch, we are the Superstation, 88.7 FM, WCSF. And if I find the weather sheet, I'll give you a weather report. The order in the breaks seldom changes, too. It's usually promo, commercial, PSA, because that's in descending order of excitement. And uh, we had to record promos for homework assignments as well. And in fact, Bob would choose the ones he liked the most and actually use them on the air. So we had audio recorded homework and written tests, and the tests were pretty easy. I seem to remember they were all true, false, multiple choice, and short answer. And uh, by short answer, I mean very short. You'd fill in the blank with just one or two words, and you're done. The written tests were a lot about procedures and legalities, especially vocabulary. For example, there was the point-to-point communication. A point-to-point communication, by the way, is highly illegal. It is if someone on the air says something that is intended to benefit only himself or herself. For example, if you get hungry and you say over the air, Hey, Pizza Hut, bring me a large meat lovers. Congratulations, you just violated FCC law. Another term that we had to know and was very important was legal ID. And actually, I'm surprised at how many people who've never even had any kind of broadcasting experience whatsoever know what the legal ID is. But in case you don't know what that is, the FCC mandates that a radio station legally identify itself every hour as close to the top of the hour as reasonably possible. The legal ID consists of two things the call sign of the station, and then immediately after that, the city of license, as they say. For example, someone working on the air at the radio station at St. Francis, that person or someone else, even on a recording, must say over the air, WCSF, Joliet, at least once per hour, as close to the top of the hour as possible. If it's, say, 5 o'clock and a song is still playing, you're not expected to talk over the song or interrupt it, or say if you're broadcasting a church service or something, it would be unreasonable to expect to suddenly hear someone identify the station in the middle of a sermon, so the FCC allows for leeway. 
Many people in radio think that you get a plus or minus five minute or 10 minute block, but the truth is there's no prescribed amount of wiggle room. Just identify the station legally once per hour, as close to the top of the hour as possible. Usually a station will just put its legal ID on a recording, a sweeper as they call it. This is the Superstation, 88.7 FM, WCSF, Joliet. Next time you're listening to terrestrial radio, pay close attention to the top of the hour because you might hear a little music bed, maybe with some sound effects, maybe with a station slogan, like broadcasting from the top of the Sears Tower. And you might hear the station identify itself, WLUP Chicago, or something like that. Uh, The term sweeper that I mentioned, I don't know the exact definition of what constitutes a sweeper, but it's basically one of those little recordings that a station will play between blocks of music, basically to let you know what you're listening to, basically a transitional recording. This is the Superstation, 88.7 FM WCSF, Will County's choice for today's best music, plus a whole lot more. Today's hits, plus your favorites from yesterday on Superstation CSF. And we did have to record sweepers for homework in Bob Zach's class. And there was another term that we learned that was pretty new to me, at least. Safe Harbor. And what is Safe Harbor? Safe Harbor is the time every day when it's safe to play indecent material on the air, because it was the time when most of your listeners were likely to be adults. And there, by the way, is a legal difference between indecent and obscene. And of course, the definitions of indecent and obscene are kind of vague and decided by community standards. But long story short, it is never okay to broadcast obscene material. But during certain hours, like probably, I don't know, 10.30 p.m. to 4.30 a.m., you can get away with broadcasting indecent stuff without the threat of getting in trouble. At St. Francis, though, Bob gave us strict orders to always keep it clean, lest the nuns yell at us. I said, wow, the nuns actually listen to this station? Bob said, well, a radio station typically has two kinds of listeners. Those who listen because they like the station, and those who listen for reasons to complain. I'll let you figure out for yourself which category our nuns fall into. We also learned who's in charge of what at a radio station. Usually the general manager is essentially the owner of the station. The College of St. Francis owned WCSF technically, but Bob was still the general manager as he was in charge of the operations. The person you hear on the air, that person is on the air because of the program director, who is responsible for putting people on the air and, if necessary, taking them off the air, and, of course, scheduling the on-air programming. Some stations have a music director, and the music director is in charge of the content that goes on the air. I guess the radio equivalent of a librarian. Music director is in charge of the music. The production director is in charge of the sweepers, the bumpers, the promos, and other miscellaneous recordings that get played between song sets and in breaks. Quite frequently, the production director does all the recordings himself or herself. And I'll just leave you hanging as to what news directors and sports directors are in charge of at stations that have news directors and sports directors. As for Radio 1, I'm pretty sure I ended up with a B in the course. And the following semester, I recorded another demo in an attempt to get on the air, and I was approved. Interestingly, I did not have to fill out a license application because by this time, the FCC was starting to deregulate itself. 
And one thing that went away as part of the deregulation was the requirement to be licensed if you were an air talent. And by the way, something else that the FCC, I seem to remember, did away with was a rule that you had to, hour by hour, take down antenna readings. They loosened that to be every three hours, but Bob Zach's rule was, no, we are taking the readings every hour. Whoever was behind the microphone would have to, every hour, go to the transmitter box and play with the dials and write down the numbers that come up. I don't remember what shift they gave me at the station or for how long it was. It was probably like two or three hours. But the program director, though, was David Freiberg. He approved me, and before I turned the mic on in my first shift, he gave me some brief coaching. Be witty, be energetic, and have fun which I think I did. And sure enough, just as Scott Delaney had told me when I was still a high school senior, it took no time to learn the broadcast console inside and out. I don't know how witty I was. I don't think I was particularly creative. I was pretty much just say what's coming up, say what I just played. And because I I don't know, I just couldn't come up with good radio content myself. I wasn't, I don't think I was good at that. I was basically good at running a tight shift as it were. There were other people, like I remember Brian Bennis for one. He would actually come in with a stack of Weekly World News, remember those things, and he would go through them, look for interesting stories to talk about on the air. Me, I just said, well, here's the band, here's a little bit about the song, and there we go. WCSF was and still is an honest-to-gosh real radio station, though. Anybody within broadcast range can pick it up, unlike the WCSF-TV station, which was only accessible on campus. And yes, that meant that if you were a commuter student, which most of the St. Francis student body was, you'd never get to watch your own school's TV station. Unfortunately, though, I think Bob took the real radio station a bit too far and insisted that WCSF was not a college station, even though it was run by the college and its students. But WCSF was a Joliet station. We were not to say on the air that we were at the college unless it was absolutely necessary. And you know, I really hated that. I absolutely hated that attitude. Yeah, I kind of understood where Bob was going. He didn't want people to dismiss the station as just a college station. But it implied that the students didn't have a station to identify with. It was just another Joliet radio station. But regardless, we functioned as any other radio station, well, except that we didn't play commercials. We had to play a legal ID sweeper at the top of the hour. We had to read the meters on the transmitter. The format, if I remember correctly, was kind of a hybrid of modern rock and alternative. But after I was on the air for a semester, the format changed to contemporary hit radio, which is a newish term for top 40. The station was no longer called The Edge, but The Superstation. I hated that new nickname. To me, a superstation was something like WGN in Chicago or WTBS in Atlanta, local TV station that still got national exposure. So, yeah, it's like, what's super about this 50-watt station that you won't let us say is a college station? I, I don't know. The music went from pretty hip to incredibly lame. Well, okay, I, sh- I shouldn't say that, maybe, because... I I particularly remember when the station changed formats on Bended Knee by Boys to Men was getting a lot of airplay, and I loved that song, so at least there was that. But of course, most of us had been repeatedly saying The Edge, some of us for several years, and many of us found the habit hard to break, which prompted David to leave a note on the console saying, Attention DJs, if I hear you say The Edge one more time, you will be terminated, and I do not mean your shift will be terminated. Wow. 
We had a phone wired into the console so we could put callers on the air. Heck, I should talk about the rest of the console, too. Every audio input on the console has its own fader and VU meter, that is volume unit meter, which told you how loud the sound was. And you wanted to slide the fader as far up as possible so that the needle measuring the volume in the VU meter was at zero, but never beyond zero, or else there'd be noisy distortion. If you put the fader all the way down until it clicked, then that audio input would be in audition mode, which meant that if you played the audio on that channel, You'd hear it in a separate speaker, but it wouldn't actually go out over the air. Each input also had on and off buttons for obvious reasons. There were two, I think they were Akai CD players. And actually, now that I think about it, there might have been three, actually. The third one was uh, meant to be a backup. But the general practice was we'd play from two CD players, and with those two CD players, you could crossfade properly from one song into the other. And what I liked a lot about these CD players was that they had a feature that most home CD players I've seen don't have, an auto-cue button. If you press auto-cue before you select the song, the CD player will stop after the song is over. You absolutely wanted to make sure that you hit auto-cue when you played a song, because if you forgot to do that, the CD would keep playing into the next song, and you may get this awkward overlap when going into the next song on the playlist. Everybody's made that mistake. There were two cart machines connected to the console, and I think a Technics turntable. There was definitely a Technics turntable in the production studio, but I don't remember for sure if there was one in the broadcast studio. And I gotta talk about this, because Bob taught us how to operate a turntable for airplay, because there's a special process you have to do to properly play a record. Now, at WCSF, on a normal everyday shift, you'd never need the turntable because all the songs on the playlist were on CD, but if you hosted a specialty show, that is a show that's not in the station's format, you may find reason to play something off of vinyl. The turntable was in an always-on state, and it was in neutral by default, which meant that if you put the stylus down in the record and manually cranked the record, you'd still hear it. But if you wanted to play a song off of a piece of vinyl, what you would do is obviously you put the record on the turntable platter, and then you place the stylus on or near the beginning of the song. Then you'd play or manually spin the platter until you get to the beginning of the song. And then the instant that the song starts, you stop the turntable from spinning. And then you manually rotate the platter counterclockwise about a quarter of a spin. Then when you're ready to start the music, you hit the start button. That quarter spin gives the record just enough time for the turntable to get to its proper speed before the music starts. And of course, there were two microphones attached to the console. On a broadcast console, and actually any console really, if you turn a microphone on, it cuts the audio to the studio monitor speakers so you don't get that nasty feedback over the air. It also triggers the on-air sign outside the studio to light up, which, of course, warns people outside of the studio to not walk in lest you make noise that the microphone's going to pick up and all the world is going to hear you make that noise. Speaking of noise that the microphone picks up, phones rigged to the console have a special feature. They don't make any noise. When was the last time you were listening to terrestrial radio and you heard a landline phone ring while the air talent was talking? Chances are you've never heard that happen. But what if somebody calls? How do you know? Well, there's usually a strobe light that flashes when a call comes in, and it's very hard to miss. You have to be blind not to see it. 
There's also usually something similar rigged to the station's doorbell, just in case you're on the air and nobody else is at the station. The doorbell might be rigged to a strobe light, or it might have some kind of a vibration panel installed somewhere in the station so as not to make any disruptive noise, but uh, you get the point there. The console also had two cart machines rigged up, but uh, they were in mono, so if you tried to play a stereo cart on one of those things, it would only pick up one channel. I trust that many of you, even if you've never set foot in a radio station, know what a cart is, but I'll still explain it for those who don't. I doubt carts are still used in radio today, given how most stations are run on computers now, but a cart, uh, which is short for cartridge, by the way, a cart kind of looks and works like an 8-track tape cartridge, but it's a bit wider and a bit thinner, so you cannot play a cart in an 8-track player or vice versa. A cart has a single reel of magnetic tape that's arranged in an endless loop, just like an 8-track tape from the 70s. Carts come in various length, could be as short as 15 seconds all the way up to 30 minutes. The way a cart works is that when you record, there's a marker at the beginning of the recording that tells the cart machine, stop playing. Without the marker, the cart would never stop unless you actually manually stopped it. Also, I found this interesting. A cart recorder does not have an erase head, just a record head. So if you wanted to record something onto a used cart, you'd actually need to use a separate device to erase the cart, or else you'd basically be making a multi-track recording. You'd hear your new recording plus the previous one. So you'd have to take what's called a bulk eraser, which is a machine that measures about 4 inches by 6 inches by 3 inches, and you have to hold a button down and slide the cart back and forth across the machine several dozen times, face up, face down, edge up, edge down, etc. Every possible orientation on all six sides. And if you didn't give it enough time on the bulk eraser, you'd have a pretty bad-sounding recording. As of 1996, one of those small bulk eraser devices would run you about $250. $250 for one of these tiny little things. Like, for, for what? But whatever, when, when you record something onto the cart, usually a promo or a commercial, you'd also have to label the cart. In big capital letters, you'd put the catalog number of the cart that the radio station keeps, and you'd also write something on it like Station Sweeper or maybe Rube Ford Commercial. The label would also tell you the running time and the last three or four words spoken on the cart, so that way whoever's on the air at the time knows what words to listen for when the recording on the cart is done, so that way that person may proceed into the next recording or talk or whatever. Once the recording is done, the cart machine continues to play the cart until it detects the stop marker, although there are some cart machines that do have fast-forward buttons that'll play just fast until they get to the next recording. Many larger radio stations would have a whole ton of cart machines lined up, and many of your more comedic jocks would use that setup for soundboard purposes. Conspicuously missing from the console, though, was a cassette player. If you wanted to play something on the air off cassette... You either had to record it to cart and play the cart, keeping in mind that the cart machines were only mono, or you could pipe the production studio in because there was a cassette player in the production studio, or you had to bring your own cassette player and connect it to the console. And if you did that, you damn well better know what you were doing lest you'd get Bob's wrath. There was a cassette deck in the broadcast studio, but it was for input only. It couldn't actually play over the air, and it would only record inputs that were specifically routed to the cassette deck. From what I remember, you could route an output to cassette 
or over the air, but not both. If you wanted to record your shift, you had to use the boombox in the station, just record it over the air. And occasionally it was required that you record your air shift so that Bob could listen to you and give you feedback. And that's the norm at most radio stations. Every so often you'd give your program director a half hour or so of your air shift and the program director would go over it with you and point out your strengths and weaknesses. Most of the time, the program director wants you just to include the spoken parts. Uh, they call this a scoped air check. But Bob wanted everything, including the music, the songs in full, so that he could hear how the levels were and how your crossfades happened. And uh, speaking of the production studio, it had a similar setup to the broadcast studio. There were a couple of CD players, one or two cart recorders, a bulk eraser, one or two Technics turntables, a couple of microphones, one rigged to an effects box, a reel-to-reel -reel deck, a small supply of tape reels and carts, and an editing kit. Oh, 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 I got myself started now. I gotta talk about that editing kit. First of all, what's the best-sounding playback medium? Vinyl? No. Digital? No. Not CDs, not even high-definition lossless audio but reel-to-reel -reel tape recorded at 15 inches per second or faster, oh my goodness. I have yet to hear better playback quality from any other format. The reel-to-reel -reel recorder in the studio wasn't hugely fancy. It wasn't a 4-track or an 8-track, just stereo, but it was still fun to use. I got some kind of strange thrill from threading tape onto the take-up reel. And what was really cool is that you could easily manipulate the tape so you could play it backwards. Can't do that with a cassette, and most turntables don't have a reverse function, so if you're playing a record backwards, that usually means you have to manually spin it, which means you don't have a steady speed. But I digress. Let me get back to editing. Oh my goodness, I loved cut and splice editing. An editing kit consists of four items. An editing block a razor blade, a wax pencil, and editing tape. The editing block is just a strip of metal with a slot that has a strip that recording tape can easily fit into. An editing block, you can get that for like 10 bucks, maybe even less. I know Radio Shack used to sell those things. I don't know where you get them now, but hey. On that editing block, there are two thin slots that the razor goes through. There's one slot that's perpendicular to the tape slot and another that's on an angle with the tape slot. The reel deck had a neutral mode, so you'd just manually rotate the reels until you heard the exact moment where you wanted to make your cut. Then you'd mark that spot on the tape with the wax pencil. Ah, but how did you know where to mark the tape? Well, you'd mark it where the playback head is, because that's where the sound is on the playback head. And then you'd do that again for the other end of the tape where you wanted the cut to make. So now you have two wax pencil marks on the tape. So what you do then is you loosen the slack on the tape reels and actually take the tape itself and put it on the editing block. And you line up the wax pencil mark where the razor slots are. If you're editing speech, you use the perpendicular slot. But if you're editing music, you use the diagonal slot. The reason that there was a difference between the two slots is that if you put two pieces of tape together that are cut at an angle, the sounds from each piece of tape would blend together whereas vertically spliced tape would have a very abrupt change. One of the assignments in radio class was to make a sweeper that consisted of a montage containing bits of three songs, and Bob specifically recommended not only using the diagonal cut on the editing block, but also masking the edit by putting a sound effect right where the edit is. But uh, anyway, let me get back to editing. 
Once you have the tape lined up and where you want it to be, you take the razor blade and you make the two cuts, one per wax pencil mark. Then after you get rid of the tape that you cut out, you line up the two ends of the tape from the reels onto the editing block as closely as possible together. And you'd take some editing tape and stick the editing tape on the magnetic tape and then rethread the reel just like you were playing anything else. It sounds like a tedious process, and I guess maybe it is, but I loved doing that cut and splice editing, especially when I'd end up with an edit so perfect that I could pull somebody into the production studio and say, tell me where the edit is, and they couldn't tell. Oh man, that was a good ego boost. So during college, I'd do a shift or two every week playing some top four, uh, excuse me, contemporary hit radio. Brandy, Eni Camoes, Madonna, and much to Bob's dismay, Willie One Blood. Very little of CHR, as they called it at the time, had any artistic merit. I remember in class once, Bob would tell us, if you don't like the song, just deal with it. It'll be over in no more than five minutes. Well, fine, but what if you don't like most of the songs? It really hit me how bland the CHR target market was when I noticed that there were two different mixes of Don't Cry by Seal. When you feel like me, I want you to know I was so used to the top 40 mix we'd been playing, so one day I auditioned the album mix that was on the same CD, and wow, such a cool arrangement. When you feel like me, I want you to know, don't cry, not alone. Jazzy, syncopated, much different from the boring emphasis on the 2 and 4 version. There are a lot of songs out there that had alternate mixes, and if the alternate mix versions were better to my ears than the top 40 versions and they were pretty much the same playing length, guess what? I snuck in the alternate version in hopes to enhance the listener's tastes. Nobody complained, and Bob never said a word to me, but then again, if he noticed, he probably let me get away with it because he and I agreed on a lot of things when it came to musical tastes. The CDs we had at the station were almost exclusively compilations from a subscription service called TM Century. There are a lot of those kind of services out there. They specifically exist to put together compilations for radio use for whatever format the station happens to be. So every so often, I think maybe every two weeks or so, we'd get a new CD in the mail from TM Century and it would have the latest chart hits with radio-friendly censored versions as necessary. And for whatever reason, I've never been able to figure out, they also included uncensored versions sometimes, which I found to be strange because these CDs were specifically made for broadcast. Very few of the CDs we had in the station were the actual artist's albums, but each CD that entered the station had a number taped to it for cataloging purposes. Bob would enter each CD painstakingly into the selector software, and when the playlist generated, they'd tell you the song, the artist, the category, the rhythm, and the CD catalog number, making it as easy as possible for us to find the CDs as those songs would come up on the playlist. And something that you don't really see on the front end, it's in the back end. Selector or whatever other software is putting together the playlists does what's called day parting. The software usually has a day parting feature that allows you to configure when certain songs come up. Like, for example, 
Shanty by Jonathan Edwards. A lot of radio people call that the Friday song because it typically airs on Fridays. So if you happen to add that song to your radio library and you want to follow tradition and play that on Fridays, you might want to tell the selector software, hey, play this song on Fridays sometime between 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. But anyway, our playlists for a while had two spots open for listener requests, and we'd play a station sweeper that would tell you to call the station, say what you want to hear, and we would pick two requests and play them. The phone usually rang right away when that sweeper played, but there was one time when I was on the air, and I had nobody call, which was very unusual. So you know what I did? I threatened to play the latest Snow song. We had just gotten a CD in from TM Century that had a new song by Snow. I guess he thought he was going to have a follow-up hit to Informer. Uh, Spoiler alert, he didn't. Then all of a sudden, the phone started ringing. The first caller said, I don't want to hear Snow. Play Take a Bow by Madonna instead. So I did. But of course, WCSF is a radio station, a public radio station that anybody within broadcast range could hear. So we would frequently get promo CDs mailed to us from various record labels, often by some artist who was unknown. And upon listening to the CD, you would understand why the artist was unknown. Those CDs usually ended up in a pile on a desk near the station's lobby with a note saying, free, take what you want. But I remember one CD in particular that came in one day my senior year. It was winter of 1996. I had about an hour or so to kill between classes, so I was just chilling in the college's cafeteria in Tower Hall. Bob Zack happened to be walking through and saw me. He said, you have a minute? I said, sure, why? And Bob showed me a CD that just arrived at the station, a promo single of Real Love, the new song by the Beatles. Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, George Harrison finishing off a John Lennon demo from the 70s. This was the second new song that the Beatles put out as part of the anthology campaign. Bob loved the Beatles, and he knew that I shared that love. He said, come with me, let's go listen to it. We went to the production studio, and Bob popped it in the CD player. We both agreed that we thought it was better than the previous Threedles song, as it were, Free as a Bird. Bob told me, I want you to be the first to play it on your shift. Cool. I don't think it got many spins on WCSF, but it was an honor to be the one to break a Beatles song in. There's actually more to this story, but I had to end it here for the sake of time. What further would happen with Sean and college radio? Well, tune in to a later chapter to find out. But as for now, as I do with every episode, I have to discuss my relationship with music, and that's why we have music for schnooks. In today's edition, I take a look at two 50th anniversary releases that I was really looking forward to this year. What did I think? Well, listen on, my friends. I gotta say, it's been a pretty good last several years with the kind of music that I'm into because, well, the archival and reissue and remix gods have been pretty good to me. There's this whole notion of copyright expiration in parts of Europe, I believe. Once a copyright is past 50 years, with unreleased music, unreleased songs, I should say, if they're not released within 50 years, then that means that their copyright becomes public domain in some places. 
That became pretty apparent because two of my favorite groups, the Beatles and the Beach Boys, both had archival releases with material that hadn't been released before and thereby extending the copyright. Another, was it 25 years, maybe another 50 years? I'm not sure. But that was awesome, having some unreleased stuff. And the Beach Boys kept doing it every year since. Every year. And the thing is, I think that copyright extension law only applies to unreleased titles. For example, the song She Loves You itself, any version of it, is already protected. So they don't need to release another version of it to get any kind of copyright protection on it. But for the Beach Boys, they have recorded a ton of songs over the years that have never been released, including on previous archival compilations. So every year, there's always a batch of songs that they recorded that had never been released, and they were always padded out with alternate mixes of some songs, maybe some vocals-only mixes, some instrumental backings, some concert performances, and it's been a goldmine, really. In the midst of all this, there's also this special 50th anniversary observation going on. The Doors albums have been coming out remastered, and finally, Strange Days and their debut album in mono finally came out, so you can hear all the differences between the mono and the stereo versions. In terms of the Beach Boys, there was a new stereo version of the Beach Boys Party album from 1965, along with a whole butt-ton of outtakes from those sessions. Their Wild Honey album was finally given a stereo mix, and that's out now. And I could go on. In 2017, the Beatles released a box set of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which included a new stereo remix of the album, the original mono mix, outtakes, oh my goodness, session outtakes, we didn't get session outtakes before, and a Blu-ray high-res audio version of it, and oh man, it came with a book, a very nicely detailed book. That was apparently supposed to be the only box set that the Beatles were going to come out with until they found that the Sgt. Pepper's set sold like mad. So they did it again last year with the so-called White Album, mono mix, stereo remix, high-res audio mix, session outtakes, and roughly 30 demos that were recorded after they got back home from India. So it's been amazing, amazing. Many people consider the Beatles' final album recorded as a group, Abbey Road, to be their finest. Sometimes I think it is, sometimes I don't, but it really is a great album. So naturally, fans were looking forward to a box set for this year, and we were granted that wish. Uh, when was it? September or October? I don't remember off the top of my head. Of course, I had to get it the day it came out, and... The thing about Abbey Road is that many people said, why are we going to be getting a new mix of Abbey Road? Do we really need one? Because the original Abbey Road sounds great as it is. And I can explain why earlier albums perhaps would benefit from remixing. Because of the technology the Beatles and other bands were using, it was pretty primitive, mainly four-track tape, which means that you could lay down four channels of music and then you fill up the tape. There's no more room for anything else. If you wanted to overdub more stuff, you would actually have to do what they call a reduction mix, which means they would combine those four channels and mix them down to another tape, and then they'd overdub in that new tape where there'd be some extra channels now. The problem is, you're losing a generation of sound because you're essentially copying one tape to another. Brian Wilson in the Beach Boys, he was very well known for doing that. He would fill up one four-track tape with instrumental backing tracks, 
and then he would merge all four of those tracks down to a single track on another tape, leaving the other tracks free for vocal overdubs. And of course, that's a generation of sound loss. So one thing that's been great about remixing both the Beatles and the Beach Boys is that they could go back to those original tapes, the original four tracks where the backing tracks were before the reduction mixes, and then synchronize the original tapes up with the new overdubs, and the sound would be so much better because you don't have that generational loss. The thing is, I believe most of the White Album and all of Abbey Road was recorded on eight-track tape, which meant that the Beatles now had twice as much room to work with. So how much reduction mixing did they actually do? Well, in reading the book that came with the Abbey Road set, it turns out there actually still was a lot of reduction mixing because they did fill up every track during the sessions, and then when they wanted to overdub more, they'd had to mix them all down, which actually surprised me. I was actually surprised they did that. As for the new remix, the new stereo remix on Abbey Road, honestly, comparing it to the original Abbey Road mix, I can honestly say the new mix wasn't really necessary. It's not bad, it's really good, it's enjoyable, but there's nothing earth-shattering about it, unlike with the stereo mixes of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the White Album. Maybe here and there a couple of things that you didn't notice before were brought out a little bit more. Maybe there are a couple of instruments that sounded a little bit more crisp, probably because they're not using the reduction mixes, mind you. But wasn't necessary. Still enjoyable. Still enjoyable. To me, the real absolute highlight with the Abbey Road box set was the session outtakes. Those are so much fun. The common lore coming from people who were involved in the recording of the Abbey Road album, the Beatles, producer Sir George Martin, the common lore was that it was a happy occasion. They really enjoyed themselves recording that album. And listening to the session outtakes, they really seriously did. They were not lying. They sound like they're having a good time. Sounded like some of the 1963 session outtakes that were on the bootlegs, laughing, having a good time, helping each other out. It's, it's really, really something to listen to. And I'm just going to go over uh, some of the highlights of the session outtakes, as it were. The first one they give us, I believe they were uh, presented chronologically. The first one was, I Want You, She's So Heavy, which despite the album title being Abbey Road, where EMI Studios was and still is, I Want You, She's So Heavy was actually recorded at Trident Studios. It's going to sound kind of weird because in my notes, I didn't write down what the uh, take numbers were, but hey, you can look it up online or if you have the box set yourself. You can look at the notes. But the take that they used of I Want You, She's So Heavy was really, really cool. And it started out a little rough, but everything fell into place really soon. Uh, what's interesting is there's a lead guitar line on there that was not used in the final mix. But honestly, it was a bit too much, so it's a good thing that it wasn't used. The one thing that everybody notices about this, that there's a now famous moment on this tape that they included in which you hear somebody come in and say, uh, guys, we're getting some complaints from the neighbors. Could you turn it down a little bit? And then John Lennon says, okay, we'll do uh, one more regular take. And if we have to do another take after that, then we'll turn it down. That was rather amusing because we're Trident Studios. Well, actually, so is EMI Studios, but Trident Studios apparently was right in a residential neighborhood. And the Beatles usually did their sessions pretty late at night. Then there's Goodbye, a song the Beatles never released or actually recorded, but it was written by Paul McCartney and given to Mary Hopkin. And I remember when Anthology 3 came out in, uh, was it 19... Yeah, it had to be 1996. 
I was kind of surprised that uh, Goodbye wasn't included on there. It's been on all the bootlegs and everything, and it sounds decent, so it should have been included. But people said, oh, that was just a demo for someone else. It wasn't supposed to be a Beatles song. Well, they included Come and Get It, so why not? But anyway, let's not get into that right now. In terms of the context of Abbey Road, Goodbye is not really essential, but it is pretty cool to have it. I was listening to someone else's podcast, I think it was Fab Four Free For All, where they wondered how Abbey Road might have sounded if instead of Her Majesty, uh, which by the way, all takes of Her Majesty, including the ending chord that was chopped off in the final album, those are on the, uh, the box set, of course. But someone wondered what would Abbey Road have been like if instead of Her Majesty, the hidden track would have been Goodbye. That would have been interesting, and yeah, I have to admit it would be. Then there's a studio demo for something that George Harrison recorded. Uh, it sounded very familiar, like I had heard it before. It, it was nothing new. But this demo has a piano on it, which, uh, by the way, I don't know if this is common lore, but George Harrison apparently wrote something on a piano instead of his usual guitar. And what's interesting is that over what we now know as an instrumental break, George was using lyrics that sounded improvised, and he was just belting it out. So, oh man, George was such an underrated singer. He had a hell of a voice. And those lyrics sounded improvised, but if you look in the book that came with the box set, there's a picture of George's handwritten lyrics that actually have those lyrics on them. The Ballad of John and Yoko, there's a uh, early version of that on the box set too. Now, The Ballad of John and Yoko is not included on an album, it was just a single, but it was included because it was recorded kind of around the time they recorded Abbey Road. And those of you who don't know the story of the recording of The Ballad of John and Yoko, everybody that you hear on that song is either John Lennon or Paul McCartney. Neither George nor Ringo was on that song. It was just John and Paul overdubbing themselves and instruments and everything like that. And it sounded like, you know, this was interesting. When EMI Studios got four-track tape recorders in 1963, starting with the song I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Beatles would typically record the basic track, the instrumental backing first, and then go back later and overdub vocals. That way you have less of a chance of messing up the take. And you would think with eight tracks available now that that's what they would still be doing. But it sounds like with the Ballad of John and Yoko, John was recording his vocal during the backing track session. I don't think it was a guide vocal. I think it was intended to be the final vocal. But the version that's on the box set, you have John on acoustic guitar and Paul on drums. And before the take started, they were calling each other George and Ringo. And the vocal really does sound like it's the one that was actually used on the released recording. And it's just John, nobody else singing at that point. Uh, Paul's harmony wasn't added yet, but it's John with reverb. All the diehard fans know that John Lennon hated his voice, and he would always want reverb on his voice, even during a rehearsal take. And here's something interesting that I, I learned with this take. At the end of the released version of the Bow to John and Yoko... There's kind of a Southwestern-style twangy guitar riff at the very end, and that was taken from a song called Lonesome Tears in My Eyes, which the Beatles used to cover back in their club days, and they covered it on the BBC. Now, it sounds like, judging from this outtake, that that was always intended because when John was uh, singing his vocal, at the very end, he actually sang that guitar line. He actually sang... It's like, whoa, okay. 
I guess that was not just suddenly made spur of the moment. He always planned it that way. I thought that was fantastic. And of course, a session for the B-side of the Ballad of John and Yoko, Old Brown Shoe, was included. And it sounded very much like the actual released version, but without the bass. And the vocal was pretty raw. Uh, the final version, the vocal was very processed, but the version on the box set, it's pretty unfiltered, untouched. It's just George's voice. And it sounded like it was the same vocal that was actually used on the final take. And the thing about Old Brown Shoe and The Ballad of John and Yoko is they didn't include a final mix of those songs on the box set. It's just these raw outtakes. And they did the same thing for Hey Jude and Revolution on the White Album box set. But on the Sgt. Pepper's box set, they did include a new mix of both Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. So I don't know what the reasoning here is. Maybe there's going to be a compilation of singles remixes i don't know i don't I, nobody knows for sure and you have the song oh darlin and paul mccartney's intention with oh darlin was he wanted to make it sound like an old-fashioned kind of 50s-ish sound with a really raw vocal on it he wanted to sound like john lennon actually so the famous story is that paul would go into the studio and just sing the hell out of this song over and over and over until he shredded his vocal cords to the point that he could sound like john lennon and this is an earlier take, so Paul's voice sounds a lot smoother than on the final take. Next, they give us an outtake of Octopus's Garden, and clearly they are having a blast recording it, this song. Ringo wrote it, and in fact, in the movie Let It Be, you can see a scene in which Ringo's at a piano demonstrating the song to George Harrison, and George is helping him out with a couple of chord changes, and then Paul and John walk in and they hear what they're doing and they kind of join in. Like, I think John sat down on the drums and started drumming along with it. But this outtake comes from the Abbey Road sessions, not the Let It Be sessions. Now, the thing about Octopus's Garden what, that really surprised me is that Ringo is clearly recording his vocal at the same time that they're recording the backing track. So he's drumming and singing at the same time. And it's clear that it's not just a guide vocal because the take breaks down after Ringo messes up the lyrics. Sorry, did I miss? I went wrong. Did I? I thought that was fascinating. I was surprised that they weren't just doing the backing track and then going back later once they have a backing track and then recording the vocal. But me? And, oh, you never give me your money. There's an outtake of that next. And I got to tell you, this was a huge revelation to me personally. On the White Album, Ringo had his first ever composition with the Beatles released called Don't Pass Me By. And all the sessionographies I've ever seen said that there was a piano on it. But the thing is, the instrument that's on the recording doesn't sound like a regular piano to me. It sounded like some kind of like, like an electric piano or some kind of organ or something. But no, every, everything said just piano. Well, you never give me your money. At the beginning of the take, Paul's playing the piano and it sounds like the piano on Don't Pass Me By. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then Paul says, Leslie off, please. Leslie off, please. Meaning turn off the Leslie speaker. And then he played the piano and it sounded like a normal piano. So that's what happened with Don't Pass Me By. The piano is being played through a Leslie speaker, which is why it sounded so weird. But not much to say about this particular take if you never give me your money. It was just a, a basic backing track with perhaps a guide vocal, and there was no bass at this point. 
There's a session recording of Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight. Those two songs were recorded together as one unit. They weren't recorded separately. And at the beginning of the take, Paul starts playing The Fool on the Hill. Uh, I think the story that I heard is that the piano that was used on that was the same piano he used on The Fool on the Hill, so that might be why. I don't know. And this one also sounds like it has a vocal recorded live with the backing tracks. I'm really surprised at how much of the lead vocals were recorded live in these sessions. Wow. There's a uh, session recording of Here Comes the Sun, and really it's nothing remarkable. It's just the same, from what I can tell, the same version we all know and love, but before the additional overdubs. And the same with Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It's not much different from the released version. It just doesn't have the anvil and the synthesizer on it. And it sounds like there's a guide vocal on it. But again, they're having fun with this. And what's uh, interesting about this that uh, many fans haven't heard before is that there's like a little instrumental introduction on the song that was edited out on the final take. And this is one of the tracks on the box that has some studio banter that just shows that they're having so much fun recording this album. George Harrison is resting his arm. Let it be known unto the people. <laughs> Brothers and sisters! Come together, uh, the session they used on here is a little bit on the interesting side. Uh, there's a guide vocal with uh, some slight reverb on John Lennon's voice. And during what would be the instrumental break later, he's kind of singing the first verse a little bit lazier. He's just kind of mumbling his way through it. And there's a slight lyrical difference. Uh, and the final version of Come Together the phrase Ono sideboards is in the lyrics, but in this take, instead of sideboards, he says sideburns. The last verse, the take breaks down, and during the break before the next take, they didn't include the next take, unfortunately, John sings a few parody lyrics and he laughs at it. The next thing they give us is an early version of the end. No vocals. Um, the famous drum solo was still being worked out because Ringo still didn't have it down yet. Now, those of you who don't know, Ringo did not like doing drum solos. He hated them. That was one of the questions they asked Ringo when they asked him to join the Beatles was, what do you want to do for your drum solo? Because they were so used to working with drummers who wanted to have their own drum solo in, the, in their set and have like seemingly half an hour of just a big long drum solo. And Ringo said, I hate drum solos. So they was like, okay, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> or something like that. I, I don't know if that's the whole story, but you know. But the end features Ringo's only drum solo. And... Uh, the very end of the song in this take, they're doing kind of a dance band ending, and it doesn't have the Abbey Road thesis statement yet, uh, the one being, end in the end, the love you take, etc., etc., etc. The guitar solos weren't done yet either. Well, in fact, Paul, George, and John were all doing the guitar solos, so obviously they couldn't, all three of them, play guitar solos while playing their other instruments at the same time, obviously. Now, something that I found interesting is that with the Abbey Road box set, if there was a take that was included on Anthology 3 in 1996, it was not included on the box set. But there is one exception, and that'd be Come and Get It. And I think that there are two reasons that they allowed Come and Get It to be on this particular set. Number one, you have a little bit of session banter before the uh, recording actually started. And second, this one is in stereo, while I believe the version on Anthology 3 is in mono. And what's really cool is at the end of the take, you can hear Paul talk about how he's going to go back and overdub, which makes sense because everything on Come and Get It, it sounds like it's a complete band, but it's all Paul McCartney. He's playing all the instruments, doing all the vocals. This was a demo that he was handing off to Badfinger. 
He gave the demo to Badfinger and he said, use this arrangement when you record your version and you'll have a hit. And sure enough, it was a huge hit for Badfinger. Coming up next, they give us an earlier version of Sun King and Mean Mr. Mustard. That's uh, another pair of songs that were actually recorded as one. And this is a really cool listen. The sound quality is amazing. It's nice and bright. There's a guide vocal with some ad-libs in Mean Mr. Mustard. And John had written Mean Mr. Mustard in India. And after that 1968 India trip, he recorded a demo of Mean Mr. Mustard in which Mustard's sister's name was Shirley. And we all know that by the time Abbey Road came out, Mustard's sister was named Pam because the next song on the album would be Polythene Pam. So to kind of make a little bit of a flow, he changed the name. And this version of Sun King Mean Mr. Mustard on the box set, the sister is still Shirley. So I thought that was fascinating. So perhaps changing her name to Pam was a last minute decision. And speaking of which, next is Polythene Pam. And what I didn't know before is that you could hear a voice before the transition into She Came Into the Bathroom Window on the Abbey Road album. You hear a voice. Here, it's clear that the voice is counting measures. I thought that was really cool. Now, next is the song Because. The big thing about Because that everybody takes away is the layers of vocal harmony. On Anthology 3 in 1996, there's a version of Because without any instrumental backing. It's just the vocals, and it's just stunning. Interestingly here, it's exactly the opposite. It's just the instrumental track. The instrumental track consisted of an electric harpsichord, a guitar, and a Moog synthesizer. This version I don't think has the Moog on it, but it does have the harpsichord and a guitar. And I never noticed it before, but the guitar is actually playing, in some points, the same thing the harpsichord is playing. And something that I was kind of secretly hoping would be included, and it was, because I read about this in Mark Lewison's Recording Sessions book that came out in, I think, 1987, maybe 88, in which he mentions that during the recording, Ringo was tapping out a rhythm to keep everybody in time. And of course, you don't hear that on the final product. Well, you hear it on this version. I was so happy to hear that. Ringo's just kind of lightly clapping his hand. Kind of like that, just to kind of keep everybody in sync. The next thing that they include is one huge long track called The Long One, which is what they called basically all of You Never Give Me Your Money, Sun King, Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, Golden Slumbers, and Carry That Weight in the End. Now the thing is, that's not the original order. The original order was after Mean Mr. Mustard, you'd have Her Majesty, which is why on the final version of Abbey Road, you'll notice that Her Majesty has this sudden crashing D chord at the beginning. That's actually the tail end of Mean Mr. Mustard. And here they have it in the original order. And personally, I think the way that they ended up with on the final product was much better, has a much better flow. But in terms of the long one, as it's called, the backing vocals during the part where Paul's singing out of college, money spent, the backing vocals are much louder and clearer, I think, although they are kind of overpowering. The one sweet dream part, the vocal single track, it has no effects on it, uh, pretty raw. The all good children part comes in pretty early on this mix. And I seem to remember hearing that on a bootleg too, that came in just a, a couple of beats earlier than normal. And then at the end, everything pans to the left side of the stereo, 
And then the organ intro from Sun King starts on the right side of the stereo. I don't think it does that on the final mix, but I found that pretty interesting. The edit from Mean Mr. Mustard to Her Majesty is just kind of jarring here. Polythene Pam vocals are single-tracked and raw. Interesting that John Lennon allowed a raw, unprocessed vocal to be on this mix. Golden Slumber sounds like it has kind of an alternate, maybe a test vocal, and the end has no vocals or guitar solos at all. It was just really interesting. And by the way, I have to rant about something, and I don't mean the song something. People sometimes consider most of Side 2 of Abbey Road, starting from You Never Give Me Your Money, up through the end, and possibly Her Majesty, to be one long medley. It is not. Folks, come on. It comes to a complete stop at the end of She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. Then there is a pause of a few seconds before Golden Slumber starts. That means there are two medleys, okay? Two medleys. If you say that they're all one big medley, well, then I guess any group of songs from any music album could be considered a medley. (sighs) All right, sorry about that. I had to get that out. Uh, Speaking of the song something, uh, next we have the string overdub by itself from the song something. And my notes here that I wrote when I was listening to this said, and I quote, divinity. Seriously, they are stunning. Oh my goodness. I remember when I first heard this was actually when the anthology documentary came out on DVD because somebody took the 5.1 sound and extracted all the individual channels. And one of the channels was just the strings and it sounded amazing and it still sounds even more amazing now that it's a proper mix specifically for audio listeners. And the last song they give us in the sessions is Take 17 of Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight. Again, those two were recorded together as one. It's just the string and the horn overdubs. It's interesting to hear those separately, but it's not quite as fascinating as the string overdubs from something. And interestingly, uh, this is in mono. I, I don't know if it's because that's how it was recorded, like if all the horns and strings were on one track or what. So in terms of audio, I mean, this was a great set to listen to, but I do have to mention that there are some things that were sorely missing from this set. I already mentioned new mixes of The Ballad of John and Yoko and Old Brown Shoe. By the way, folks, in my personal opinion, Old Brown Shoe is the single most underrated Beatles song ever. Listen to that song. Listen to a modern mastering of Old Brown Shoe. Like, take it from the 2009 Past Masters listen to it, especially the bridge with the bass line. Oh my goodness, that is a killer bass line, played by George Harrison, by the way, not Paul McCartney. But there are three other things that should have been included, though. There's a version of You Never Give Me Your Money that comes to a complete stop. And before the stop, there's this big Jerry Lee Lewis kind of improvisation. It's on one of the bootlegs out there. And by the way, one reason, speaking of which, that the Abbey Road box was such a welcome addition, at least to my collection, was that there's several bootlegs going around on the black market and in trading circles, I guess that have outtakes from a lot of Beatles albums, like Please Please Me with the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale. Sorely missing is Abbey Road. There's hardly anything out there from the Abbey Road album. And that's one reason it was so good to have this. We finally have some session tapes. 
on the bootlegs, they have that You Never Give Me Your Money with the Jerry Lee Lewis ending. And it's like, why didn't they include it here? Why didn't they kill off some of those bootlegs? Also, there's a version of Here Comes the Sun that has a lead guitar line that wasn't used on the final mix. That leaked out a few years ago. I think you can find it on YouTube. I'll put it in the online bibliography if I can find a link to it. Honestly, though, it wasn't really essential, but it would have been nice to have in this box. I mean, the lead guitar line was highly unnecessary. Another song from Abbey Road that the original session had an extended kind of fade. Well, it didn't have a fade out. It came to a complete end. The song Something, as we know, comes to an end. Well, in the original session, after it came to an end, there was a little vamp that started up again that went on for about three minutes. And it has this kind of riff going on that would later be used in John Lennon's solo song, Remember, from his Plastic Ono Band album. That would have been nice to have in this set, but it is out on bootlegs if you want to seek it out. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. In fact, I'll link that in the online bibliography as well if I can find it. So yeah, those three things would have made this really, really good box set even better. Even better. The book is a great read. Uh, Even if you've read Mark Lewison's books at this point, Mark Lewison, for those of you who don't know, is the single definitive Beatles author. If you ever want to confirm something Beatles, look it up in Lewison first. But oh my goodness, yeah, he's he's a great author, but he wasn't used for this project, but the book that came with the Abbey Road box is still really good. It has uh, session dates, the session locations, pictures of tape boxes, pictures of session notes, pictures of handwritten lyrics. It has the alternate shots from the photo session for the album cover. It has the story of the album cover. There are a ton of pictures from the sessions that Linda McCartney took. Mind you, she was a professional photographer. She knew what she was doing. And these are quality pictures. So good. So nice to look at. And this was, I think, probably the highlight so far of my musical purchases of 2019. I do expect that there's going to be another Beach Boys copyright extension archival release in the next few weeks after I'm recording this. But there's one other thing that I got that I was really, really looking forward to. I realized that I didn't have a copy of Chicago Transit Authority on CD. I bought a used vinyl copy of it. It sounds eh, only so-so. It sounds decent enough, but could be better. But I figured I got to get the CD. And I realized that Rhino Records was about to release a 50th anniversary remix. So I decided to hold off and wait for that. And my wife hinted that I might want to hold off until my birthday. (laughs) So I did. And sure enough, it was a birthday present for me, the 50th anniversary. It was a little bit off-putting at first when I opened up the package because it was just a slimline digipack CD case, which is fine, I guess, but it didn't have any liner notes or anything. It's like, come on, this 50th anniversary of a pretty groundbreaking album. You don't have anything to go with that. And then I listened to it and now I really wish I didn't. The 50th anniversary remix of Chicago Transit Authority is absolutely horrible. It's horrible. Sound quality isn't that good. There's no EQ on it whatsoever. And one thing that actually would have worked if there was any care taken with it whatsoever is that on the original mix, the horns were on one side of the stereo spectrum, 
but on the remix, they're spread across the left and right, which I think is a better balance. But it sounds terrible. Terrible. The horns are distorted throughout the album. And honestly, I couldn't even listen to the whole thing. It's, it just sounded really, really bad. If you want to get a copy of Chicago Transit Authority, which I think is a fantastic album. I mean, good Lord. You look at, uh, it's something I noticed when I, was, when I first listened to the vinyl copy that I bought uh, just a few months ago. Just side one of four itself. It's only three songs, but they, they're long songs. You have Introduction, which I believe Terry Kath wrote way back before Chicago had a recording contract. They used to do some kind of uh, introductory piece of music when they took the stage, but they didn't like it, so they wrote this new one called Introduction. And it is a killer piece of music. Oh my god, it's got vocals and everything. It's got all the brass you expect. I don't know if they've always done it in concert, but nowadays, if you go to a concert given by the current Chicago lineup, they still kick it off with introduction, and I love that. And then you have, does anybody really know what time it is? Classic tune, except it has the extended piano intro that you never hear on the radio, unless you listen to Bob Stroud's rock and roll roots in Chicago. That's how I first heard the piano intro, by the way. He played the whole thing. And then you have... Beginnings, another Chicago classic. Oh, man, that is a killer, killer album side right there. But unfortunately, it is a killed album side with this new 50th anniversary remix. And it's a shame because Chicago deserves so much better. I love Chicago's earlier stuff before they got all 80s power ballad I guess the death of Terry Kath is when Chicago jumped the shark. After Terry Kath accidentally offed himself the quality kind of went downhill. I mean, yeah, they had huge hits afterwards, but hit doesn't necessarily mean quality. It just means commercial. But I was so looking forward to the 50th anniversary remix of Chicago Transit Authority. And I'm sorry I asked for it for my birthday. I really am. I'm just going to go back to the previous CD and maybe I'll consider the remix if they go back and fix it up and at the very least add some EQ and fix the distortion on the horns. And just to make sure it wasn't just me and I wasn't just being too over observant, I went back and I listened to an earlier CD pressing of Chicago Transit Authority that I borrowed from the library. It sounded way better and there was no distortion on it. And also just to make sure that it wasn't just my overcriticalness. Yes, overcriticalness is a noun. Look it up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. I went on Amazon.com and looked at the reviews, and most of them agree with me. It's trash. It is garbage. So, yeah, it's, it's just a shame. Thank God Almighty that this didn't happen with the Beatles. Oh, man, that would have been such a disaster. So, yeah, it's been kind of a manic-depressive fall in terms of 50th anniversary reissues, remixes, releases. But the fact is, in the end, we still have the music, we have a great Abbey Road box set, and there are still better-sounding versions of Chicago Transit Authority that are easily obtainable. And I'm thankful for that. Two contrasts between two great classic bands and their 50th anniversary releases. Wow. That's not the end of it this year, I hope, because, well, 
the Beach Boys copyright extension coming out this year, at least I hope there will be one this year, 1969. In 1970, the Beach Boys released their first album for Warner Brothers. It was called Sunflower. It peaked at 151 on the Billboard 200. And interestingly, that's one of their most popular albums among fans. So we fans are really looking forward to uh, what's coming up for a potential 1969 copyright extension because a good portion of Sunflower was recorded in 1969. So this will be really interesting. But having said that, I'm going to stop babbling for now and just call it a day for this chapter of Autobiography of a Schnook. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me over email at autobio at schnookpodcast.com and over Twitter and Instagram at schnookpodcast. And actually, schnookpodcast is also the URL on Facebook, facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. And as always, I thank the charming and delightful Lisa for her support. And I guess I'm just going to shut up and put an end to it. End to it. And I like to remind you the good goes around. And I hope it goes around to you this coming holiday. All the best, my friends. Mm-hmm.